When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hi, I'm sports broadcaster Anne-Marie Anderson. I'm Olympian Holly McPeak. We're both former athletes, businesswomen, and mothers, and we want to help you create the life you want using sports like a boss. Whether you're an athlete, entrepreneur, or parent, we want to help you get to where you want to be. Well, good, because I either got too many kids or I'm overscheduled, overwhelmed. Honestly, Holly, half the time I feel like I'm screwing it up. Well, that's why we created this podcast to help get coaching, parenting, and the whole sports culture back on track. We've got a big network of people elite athletes like you, Holly, entertainers, experts. We're going to find out what works for them and what doesn't so that you handle sports like a boss. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Absolutely thrilled to have Rob Mahoney of Sports Illustrated, one of my favorite writers and one of my favorite podcasters on, to preview the NBA Finals. The timing worked out perfectly to really do a full-bore preview, and that is the first 40 minutes of this. We go really in-depth on the different matchups and tactical elements that are that are present in this series. Then after that, we get into an interesting conversation about kind of the takeaways of this season for for high-profile free agents and and decision-makers this year. So kind of a two-pronged conversation that I really enjoyed. The conversation is brought to you by Yahoo Daily Fantasy. You can go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy, use the POD25 promo code for $25 in free play on your first deposit. CBS Sports HQ, which you can check out in a variety of your streaming devices. BetOnline.ag, use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Conversation runs about an hour and 15 minutes. Really loved it. One regret on my part is I screwed up something silly and my mic was not plugged in all the way for the first about half of the recording. So it still works and you still hear me fine. It just sounds a little bit tinny and distant, but it's because it, was, it wasn't using my actual mic. It was using the computer default mic. My apologies for that. Rob still sounds awesome. And, um, and there's plenty of great analysis there. I'm sure, you know, I'm very nitpicky with audio quality. I, if I did what I could to, to tweak it. But anyway, the content is still great. And then about halfway through, it shifts to the normal audio quality on my end that you that you know and hopefully love. So you can keep an eye on that. And as I said, it's it's an hour 15 conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. I am extremely excited that this year's finals will truly be a culmination of a fun playoffs of very interesting regular season that has some big takeaways. And part of the reason why is because these are both teams with very pronounced strengths and a matchup that we haven't seen before. We've seen some of these players face off in different iterations, but there are a lot more questions this time than what happens when the same two teams, even if they change constructions over that time, face off four years in a row. Yeah, I think you trade some of that angst that comes with, you know, another LeBron or another Cleveland Golden State series. But as you mentioned, you get so many different areas of intrigue. 
And a lot of it is exactly that, that we've seen Mark Gasol play the Warriors before. We've seen Kawhi and Danny Green play the Warriors before. But the deck has been shuffled. The variables have been changed. And, you know, just from kind of a, a laboratory standpoint, I think we're controlling for a lot of different things uh, by putting all these players on one team together, by allowing them to play off each other's strengths, adding Kyle Lowry into the mix, adding Pascal Siakam into the mix. And it's just it's it's a really fascinating matchup in a lot of ways, starting from the fact that I think that Toronto, at least in my mind, has been the most impressive defensive team in the playoffs. And if you want anything in, you know, a counter or a foil for Golden State, I think it's that one of the definitive challenges of facing the Golden State Warriors when they're full strength or close to it is that you have to be at least solid on both ends of the four, but I think you have to be great on at least one end of the four as well, because that's where you can cultivate your identity. And a lot of the best series for the Warriors get kind of nasty, not not in terms of like body checks or anything like that, but like going back to the 2018 Western Conference Finals, you know, that was a actually a fairly ugly series. And part of the reason why is because the Warriors defense is often designed to make a team isolate a lot. You know, that's they're trying to stagnate a team's offense. And that's what happened in the Houston series. And a lot of times what the best defenses try to do against the Warriors is try to get their offense to stagnate. You know, Kerr's system is built around ball and player movement. And there are different ways to attack that. You can go after turnovers. You can try to stop certain actions or certain players, ball denials, all that kind of fun stuff. But the, the main idea often is to just slow it down. And the Raptors do have fascinating personnel to try that. No, I think so. And, you know, it'll depend on how much they want to muck it up and grind it out because on the flip side of that, guys like Lowry and Siakam in particular, you know, they love those kind of open court opportunities in the same way that the Warriors do. You know, I think that pairing is kind of their Draymond Green in a lot of ways. The the accelerant, the the you know, the mechanism to pick up four or six or eight kind of quick and easy points over the course of a game. And so how much do you want to reel that in at, you know, at, just to to play a certain way, to play a certain style, to to get the game you know deeper and deeper into the muck, and how much of that are you willing to sacrifice, or are you trying to kind of pick and choose? And you're saying, okay, if that first immediate outlet isn't there, then we really want to grind this thing out. And I, th- I think you're right that the Raptors do have the personnel to do that, and obviously a lot of that starts with Kawhi, who you know no matter how many defenders you put in front of him, no matter who's immediately guarding him, is just so physically strong that he can he can really kind of grind through the you know the levels of your defense and so I think that's one huge advantage and one area where obviously Kevin Durant's presence or or non-presence in the series is going to be pretty pronounced because as the game slows down I think Kawhi you know stands to be only better and better relative to his peers in in these games whereas you know even if Durant is back and healthy and looking great and the Warriors are going through him the fact that you can put Kawhi opposite him when the game slows down for the Warriors I think it is a pretty pronounced advantage for the Raptors. Just the idea that, you know, if you're going to, again, no one can stop Kevin Durant. You're really not playing uh, playing him with that in mind. But if you're going to pit anyone against him, I think it's going to be a guy like Kawhi. And just the, the little things that you're going to be able to take away from him, the little ding on his efficiency that's going to come with that. Uh, so, I mean, Kawhi on both sides of the ball in terms of playing slow and, and really grinding out this series, I think is going to be pretty crucial. Agreed. And you you brought up in the kind of the intro as we were talking about this, the idea of this series being laboratory. And I think the biggest laboratory element is Kawhi Leonard playing with significantly more 
shooting. And that's a weird thing to say because San Antonio was always such a good three-point shooting team in terms of percentage, but it wasn't in terms of frequency and volume. And what I generally define as those terms is really how many players do you have to actively defend at the three-point line? And depending on which iteration of the Raptors is on the floor at a given point, that can be four. In certain circumstances, it can even be five. And that's something that, due to personnel, due to Popovich's philosophy, generally speaking, the Spurs have not done. They did it a little bit when they were playing Lamarcus at the five and Kawhi at the four back in the 16-17 season, but not that much. And I think that has really helped Kawhi. And where I go with that is this idea of what Milwaukee did, which is not defending Kawhi primarily with just one guy. So you have one player who his job is to slow Kawhi down as much as possible, but then if Kawhi wants to get close to the basket, and he's strong enough that he can get there, then he's going to see at least one other person. And I thought that was really the value of having Brooke Lopez, having, you know, Giannis was not primarily guarding Kawhi for a couple different reasons. And I, whether or not they do it, the Warriors do have the personnel for that approach, depending on, you know, if Iguodala starts, Durant, all that kind of stuff, because they could have Draymond Green or a center, depending on who they're having out there, as that second player to basically be the last line of defense. Yeah, I mean, I think they tend to to play that way regardless. You know, we think of Golden State as as a switching defense, and they are, but they switch, and then they kind of layer in the help, and they layer in kind of the... Uh, you know, the emergency breaks, as it were, you know, they don't have a guy like Brooke Lopez really in terms of that size. And I think especially early in that conference final series, we saw it catch Kawhi off guard a few times, just the size of the rotations that were coming at him. But I think what the Warriors do well is they put, they kind of put bodies in front of you early by edging off certain guys, whether it's, you know, Mo Harkless or Clint Capella or whoever it is in these playoffs. And it's going to be fascinating to see who those guys are against the Raptors because, as you mentioned, there's just more guys who can shoot, at least in theory, at a given time. And, uh, you know, and it, you know, if you have even one of the – if you have an Eric Bledsoe on the floor, as we saw for the Bucks, even if you're a team that shot, you know, as many threes during the season as pretty much anyone like Milwaukee did, that can really compromise your spacing. Whereas Toronto, you know, if they – whether they trust Danny Green or not or how much he ends up playing in the series, obviously his defense is really important, but he's going to need to make some shots. And then if Fred, if Fred Van Vliet's shot keeps working at this point, then it's, okay, what what are the edges, if you're Golden State, that you can kind of sink in on? How much room can we give Marc Gasol knowing that we're going to close out on him and the fact that he doesn't, doesn't really want to shoot every time? You know, he'll take threes, but he doesn't want to shoot every time. And if we can force him into some of those decisions, will he balk at the idea and so, you know, I think what Golden State is in a position to do, as the, as they often do, is kind of put a couple guys hovering in help, laying in wait, and making Kawhi really kind of have to think in advance before he even starts his moves and starts his drives. And with that, you know, it, it's not a huge difference necessarily, but you're talking about the difference of, okay, maybe we knock a couple seconds off the shot clock because Kawhi doesn't want to go to his first move. Maybe we take away this one outlet uh, that further offense is really effective. And so when you're talking about a final series, a lot of times – Games can come down to that. A series can come down to that. Just making guys go from even their second to their third or fourth option can be a pretty huge deal. Right. And that ties in with my kind of one of my overarching theories of basketball, which is that it's it, it's a sport that is about defining choices. And so for me, I like to start that on the offensive end. And so 
an offense's goal is to force a defense into bad choices. So that's, uh, and I mean by that is undesirable. So you talked about, you know, like shading off of somebody. Well, it's very different to concede a Mo Harkless three than to concede a Marcus Gasol three, let's say, as an example there, or Fred Van Vliet. And it is going to be fascinating because no, no defense is perfect enough to take everything away. So even if it's just in the worst case scenario, okay, if we're going to have to do something, what do, what do we want the other team to have? And I think the Warriors overall over the years have done a really nice job of picking those spots and exploiting it. I mean, the, the prominent early example in the Kerr era was in the 2015 playoffs when they put Andrew Bogut on Tony Allen. And so in that series, basically what they said is they're like, okay, Tony Allen can do whatever he wants, and then we're going to try to gum everything up. I'm sure Marcus Gasol remembers that series very well. And sometimes, almost every time, the choice is not that easy. And, and so really what you're trying to get at is those sorts of circumstances where there isn't a clear-cut option and there isn't a real kind of the, – the opposite of a hiding place where there, is, there isn't really an, an easy way to, to, to settle it out. And I thought an interesting example of that was in the Houston series for the Warriors because they were conceding a lot of open threes – to guys that periodically hit them. I mean, we had Austin Rivers going crazy for a couple of games. Some of those were contested, but a lot of them were easy. P.J. Tucker had that, and I thought that was a good articulation of the idea. Now, will that work against Toronto is an open question. Yeah, I mean, I think that's when you're looking from Golden State's perspective about a guard in the series, it is in search of that Tony Allen proxy. It, just like so many Warrior series are, it's who can we cinch off of so that we can gump, so that we're able to trap James Harden or Dame Lillard, so that we're able to put more bodies in front of Kawhi Leonard. And as you mentioned, I think, and this is really a tribute to, I think, how much the NBA has evolved since then, is that there are just fewer and fewer of those guys around, where now you're not looking for a complete non-shooter because most teams honestly don't have them. Um, or if they do, they're hidden very well or they have you know offsetting strengths that complicate that decision-making. I think now it's, okay, If how much do we want to really test you know how hot Fred Van Vliet is right now or how much do we really want to test how shaky Danny Green's confidence in his shot maybe right now so there's it's it's kind of like you're taking decent to good shooters or, or a Norm Powell or or a Marcus All or whether you want to you know give Pascal Siakam some room for the corners even though he's shown he can hit that shot you know well enough in some games to beat you and so you really you have to choose what you live with and I, I like your framing in terms of uh Really looking, I think, I think at things on both sides of the ball in terms of choices and and forcing teams into bad choices, and I think the way you do that generally is just you know through targeting and selective you know uh, strategy, obviously, but also making teams make a volume of choices, and I think that's where you look at a guy like Kawhi. And yes, he's he's proven himself as a playmaker in these playoffs. I think he's done very well in that regard as these series have gone on. But you kind of just want to put him in a position where he has to make tough, dynamic choices over and over and over and over again and play with those odds. Play with the idea that, you know, if you keep changing your coverage slightly, you know, moving guys around, zoning guys up in certain ways, changing the variables that are involved, that he's going to misread something, that he's going to go too soon or too late, that he's not going to see his options because this isn't a guy who, this isn't LeBron. You know, like the, there are a different set of considerations involved where with Kawhi, I think you're, you know, he can pass, but he's a guy who does seem to identify things a little later sometimes or who doesn't always, you know, pick up on the action right when it happens. 
Uh, and it works for him because he's such a scoring threat that he can still play that way and get nine assists you know, in, in a crucial game. But I think you still want to put him in a position to do that and, and really kind of put him in a position to make as many playmaking decisions as you possibly can. Along the idea of changing looks and changing dynamics, one of the developments over the last, say, three to five years that I've been most intrigued by and excited about is a fundamental shift that has happened with those attack points. So I'll use the Tony Allen example again. It used to be that the standard operating procedure was put your worst defender, the guy you wanted to hide, on that weakest offensive player. And there is some merit to that, especially in circumstances where that player that you're trying to hide is important offensively, you don't want to make them work as hard, all that sort of stuff. But really what we've seen over the last couple of years, and to me the example that is very instructive for this specific series, was putting Joel Embiid on Pascal Siakam. And what that did, it challenged Siakam to use a part of his game that isn't as robust as built out. I mean, he's, to me, the most improved player in the league this year. Most improved does not mean perfect. Nobody's perfect. We just saw my pick for MVP. His weaknesses get exploited a little bit in the last series. We'll maybe talk about that later. But the idea of using your smartest or your best helper in that circumstance instead of your weakest defender, I think has been a game changer in the NBA that is going to make the league more compelling moving forward. No, I, th- I think that's very well put. And it, it really is about taking guys who are good at one thing and making them stretch to make something that's kind of related work or something that's kind of, you know an adjacent skill, a related skill, something that it just isn't quite the same. Or or again, like with a guy like Embiid where you know Siakam is great and quick and you know is able to really dupe a lot of guys into jumping on his, you know, his first fake and stuff like that. And having just having a defender who can close out from behind him, who can you know catch back up to him if he does bite on that first fake, and at the same time if he stays in front of him, you know is able to to really smother him in a different way. And I think you know the Warriors are one of these teams that in terms of matchup play are always so fascinating in that way because I do think they will do some of the traditional hide the weakest defender and the lesser threat. Um, if only because the weakest defender for all, a lot of these lineups, just by virtue of how many great defenders the Warriors have, is Steph Curry. And a guy like Danny Green is going to present a prime opportunity for Curry to, as you said, rest, avoid some foul trouble. I think there are a lot of things they want to manage with a matchup like that. But there are going to be a lot of times where Van Vliet is on the, Van Vliet is on the floor, too. And, uh, you know, Curry's going to have to guard him and they could potentially the Raptors could try to test that in certain ways. I think there are a lot of ways that the Warriors could look to juggle this stuff because, you know, whether you have Durant or not, assuming that, you know, Andre Iguodala is probably going to start on Kawhi Leonard, that Clay Thompson is probably going to start on Kyle Lowry. I think everything from there is fair game because and I, th- I think one of the reasons for that is you're really just not afraid of Marcus all posting you up at this point. And so if you have to put a wing on him, if you if you want to, you know, ro- really roll the dice and put a smaller guard on him and try to just kind of, you know, bother him and if he tries to put the ball on the ground or something like that because he's going to be playing at the elbow. He's going to be playing at the top of the floor. And so I think that introduces, you know, a new set of considerations for Golden State just by virtue of the fact that, you know, the Marcus Sauls and the Serge Ibaka's of the world are not going to beat you putting their back to the basket right now and and grinding you into the rim. That's a really great point, and Gasol's limitations could end up being a, a part of the series that could be reluctance to shoot, that could be 
his, you know, the post-up game is, is, is different now. It could also be theoretically the same for Draymond Green. Draymond Green's post-up game has been very limited over the course of his career. He's so good at so many other things that I don't think there's really been the impetus to develop that all the way. There were some sequences in the Clippers series where he struggled posting up Patrick Beverly. Granted, Patrick Beverly's strong and is a, is a damn pit bull. So it makes sense that you might have some trouble with him despite his stature. It's a similar thing with Chris Paul at other moments in time. And you brought up the idea of kind of Curry and, and where they put him. And something that I think gets underrated in all of this and might become more of a trend over the next couple of years is that there's this easy idea of, okay, you want to get the other team, the, the guy they don't want defending in the primary action. Now that can be, you, you want, you know, you want Curry on Harden before he starts doing all his dancing. That's one way of doing it. I think what we're going to start getting at is, and, and D'Antoni has talked about this in the past, of making those guys work. And putting them in the primary action is an easy way to do that. But another way is put them on an active offense, try to get them on an active offensive player. And what I mean by that is somebody like J.J. Redick. Redick is not often involved in the primary action. I mean, he can be if they do like all the, the handoff stuff that Philly does and everything else. But another part of it is, even when he's not, he's moving all the time. And I'm imagining that if that those type of players are also a real challenge for ball-dominant offensive guys because you're like, damn it, I'm, I'm doing all this other work. I don't want to chase that guy around. And one element that coaches could start bringing in a little bit, so let's say like Danny Green, is adding a little bit more activity to his game. You know, maybe even just crossing sides of the floor more often just to get a little bit more exertion to make it so they have to run across the floor a couple extra times per quarter. I could see that ending up becoming a bigger thing over the next couple of years. I really like that idea. And I think it does come down to, you know, really leaving no safe harbor for those players in a lot of ways. And I, th- I think Steph is a pretty interesting example just because he has been, you know, he's looked exhausted at the end of some of these games. But while the game is in action, especially since Durant has been out, has looked pretty tireless. I mean, he's running around for full possessions offensively. Uh, really wearing out his defender and yet is able to do it time and time and time again. Yes, he has clay and he has, you know, Draymond as a pressure release and stuff like that. But, you know, nobody at a star level certainly is more active without the ball. And whether the Raptors have that guy in a series like this will be pretty interesting. And how much, you know, how much do you divert your Kawhi-centric offense to get Danny Green moving like that? Or how much do you even need to? Can you run your normal stuff and just have a guy like Green, supposing that's the matchup for Curry or, or Van Vliet or whoever it is, can you have them moving around enough to distract Curry, to make him move, to force him to you know to cover in that way? Or are the Warriors just going to try to switch out of it? And then can you attack those matchups? And the Raptors are not a team I associate with being you know real matchup hunters in a lot of cases. You know I, I think they will try to get Kawhi the best you know kind of advantage that they can in some cases, but you're not running three two pick and rolls with Danny Green I wouldn't think just because you know the threat of Danny Green in those situations is pretty muted you know I think that's the value of getting Curry off of a guy like uh, uh, Kyle Lowry for example just getting away from that kind of three one action where it's so dangerous on both sides but how much the Raptors really want to manipulate that and how deliberate they want to be because on the one hand I think Cleveland showed you know you can be really successful at times doing that against the Warriors if, if in Houston to another extent as well. If you have a, a, you know, a big, strong ball handler who can just barge through Curry, 
I think you can be successful doing that, but it does take it does take you out of a lot of your stuff. It does take a lot of modification, a lot of changes, um, and how much the Raptors really want to be doing that at this phase with how successful they've been will be interesting to watch. Lots more to talk about with Rob Mahoney, but first a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. It is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. You have the NBA and NHL playoffs underway, and on top of that, baseball and golf are really starting to pick up. So if you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. Yahoo Daily Fantasy offers single day and week-long contests you can pick a new team every day and they have the lowest management fees across the industry so instead of playing with other sites that charge high fees just to play yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you the players to win to get started go to yahoo.com daily fantasy and use the pod 25 promo code for 25 dollars in free play to make your first deposit go to that yahoo.com daily fantasy and find a contest that's right for you could try a 50-50 contest where the top half of the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they pair you with another player of your skill level. And you can do a quick match contest for free or for cash. And the best part is quick match contests have no management fee. So that means you keep 100% of your winnings. Alternatively, you can play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in guaranteed prize pool contests. No matter what you want to try, you go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and use that promo code POD25 for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. The sooner you get to playing, the sooner you can get to winning at Yahoo Daily Fantasy. We also have a message from CBS Sports HQ. Do you miss when sports networks cover just the news and highlights without the yelling and fake debates? If you do, and if you miss that like I do, watch CBS Sports HQ. It is the free 24-hour sports network that is built for fans like you and me. You can get tons of highlights, analysis, and instant game reactions, everything that matters about the game, without diving into political and social issues like on other sports networks. And if you enjoy placing some bets or competing against your friends in a fantasy league, their experts are always dishing out their top picks and advice to help you win. So check out CBS Sports HQ. It is always on and always free. No need to pay a subscription fee, have an expensive cable package. Instead, you just download the CBS Sports app on your phone, Fire TV, Roku, or Apple TV to start watching today. Another element that has made the regular season games notable between these two teams has been something that Fred Van Vliet has done better than just about everybody else, and that's picking up Steph Curry from beyond half court. I mean, he's done it three-quarter, pretty close to full at at moments in time, and again, that's making him work even more. And a lot of times, the benefits for those things in the moment are pretty marginal, but maybe, maybe, just maybe at the end of the game, one of the best offensive players in the NBA is a little bit more tired, and maybe that means he misses one or two jump shots. And it's it's a long game, but I do think it's something, especially if if Toronto, and I think they can, can kind of have their cake and eat it too there, where the downside of pressure is often that you're that you're there if they get the release, then all of a sudden they get a cleaner look at the basket. But really, if it's one guy, my my analog here is offensive rebounding. I think offensive rebounding is largely a one man game now because if the other four guys are back, you're not as screwed if he doesn't get the offensive rebound. And they could just use Van Vliet. I don't, I'm not saying start him or anything silly like that necessarily, but giving him more minutes, squaring his minutes up with Curry solely on the idea of making that extra first, you know, five to eight seconds a little bit harder, even though Curry, as you said, has looked tired after the game, but tireless during them. I think that could really help. And I don't think they would sacrifice much by doing that other than Van Vliet's own energy level if he's playing a significant portion of the games like he did in late in the Milwaukee series. 
I think it's definitely a promising thing for Toronto. And Van Vliet's defense is always interesting to me because on the one hand, obviously his height is going to work against him in a lot of different matchups. He really kind of it really kind of controls, you know, when he can be on the floor, who he can guard, stuff like that. But when you see him hound a guy like Curry, I think that's when, you know, his best attributes defensively come out. I can't remember whether it was against the Clippers or against the Rockets, but we've seen earlier in these playoffs that when when teams start pressuring Curry earlier and earlier, more and more, and obviously this is the Warriors have done this, you know, frequently or not at least semi frequently in the past, but they're in a unique position to basically run, you know, like a half court pick and roll with Draymond Green, you know, like or back court pick and roll with Draymond Green, where you just kind of move the point of initiation further and further up. And the fact that Draymond is already kind of a point guard in himself who can, you know, sprint down the floor with the ball and make smart decisions. And the fact that Steph can, you know, step into 30 footers or 35 footers if you really wanted him to. I think puts an interesting spin on that where, yes, it's only one defender for now, but when the Warriors move the point of the screen higher and higher up and are forcing you to say, okay, now you now you have two defenders in this play, both of whom have to get back into it once both of our guys come out of this as threats. Draymond is the playmaking threat. Curry has a long-range shooting threat. How are you going to respond to that? And that's one area where you really are just not envious of anything these opposing coaches have to deal with with the Warriors because whatever solutions you have to tire out Curry, to challenge him, to stress him, to keep him covered, it's like they can always just kind of move the move the offense further from the basket where they're still going to be pretty comfortable and odds are your defenders are not. It's an excellent point and it connects with another counter that the Warriors have, which they haven't really used as a counter in these playoffs. They've just used it as an opportunity. And it's something you wrote about in your piece for SI about Draymond Green. And there is this old traditional idea of the point guard is the guy who brings the ball up the floor. Not necessarily true with the Warriors. And I think one of their most significant, maybe the most significant development of these playoffs has been Draymond Green creating, it's not necessarily transition. It can be semi-transition. It can be just a, a, a mismatch. By pushing the ball, just choosing to on a specific possession. And first of all, Draymond Green grabs a bunch of defensive rebounds, so he can do that of his own volition. But also, let's say Fred Van Vliet is picking up Curry 80 feet, you know, whatever whatever they want to do. Well, you could give the ball to somebody else. And Green, his ability defensively is, is not in question. I mean, for me, even with some of the the foibles about him in the regular season, you know, I thought his defense, especially in the first half of the year, wasn't quite at that level. As Marcus Thompson wrote about, he lost a bunch of weight, and that made a huge difference. But he's he's an incredible regular regular season defender when engaged, and in, in the best playoff, most valuable playoff defender in the entire league, in my opinion. And even with what Kawhi did this year, and what I think has really opened eyes, and for me, I've covered this team for a decade, is the pace and the kind of creation that he can bring in those transition and semi-transition moments to give the Warriors offense a little bit more verve, a little bit more life coming often out of nowhere. No, I think it's a big factor and it really has been for the Warriors and for Draymond this whole way. And, you know, sometimes it manifests in a layup. Sometimes it manifests in someone, you know, a defender panicking and trying to get over to him quickly, which then opens a three for Clay or Steph or whoever. Sometimes it just manifests in a foul. You know, it's CJ McCollum wisely kind of trying to take an on-the-floor foul to avoid it. And then, you know, you get in the bonus a little earlier. Then, you know, next time someone's holding Steph off the ball, maybe it's their fifth, and they send him to the free throw line. And that's one area where I, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how the Draymond uh, pace factor plays into this, where, 
you know, when when it's the smaller guys who are inside who have to rotate over and try to stop him when he decides to really rev it up. It's one thing if that's Dame or CJ McCollum, and it's a different thing if it's Kyle Lowry, who is, you know, I, th- I think the the playoff leader in charges taken, obviously always a threat to do that. And with a guy like Draymond, who really, once he gets going, is just barreling down the paint. I think he's done a very good job of finishing in these playoffs overall, better than I can remember from him in a long time in terms of really finishing under duress when, you know, whether it's smaller guys trying to get under him, whether it's bigger guys trying to come contest him. I think he's done a very, a very nice job of really just keeping things clean around the rim. But it's a different thing with a guy like Lowry, who not only has great hands, you know, as a, as a defender, but the feet to get over there, the positioning to really take that hit and the willingness to do it, where I'm really interested to see how much Draymond really goes into to full abandon on those kind of fast break charges. In addition to that, the Raptors in most of their lineups, especially if they get OG and Anobi back, their forward line, 3-4-5, has so much length, so much defensive intelligence. And if you want to add in Danny Green, I mean, he's smaller, but he has a lot of those elements in play too. So it isn't like Dame or CJ back there where, you know, they're, they're trying to do the team thing, but they, they don't bring a lot of positives to the table. They're wonderful players. That's just not what they do well. Toronto has a lot of guys that provide more positive value and can handle themselves in that. And something that Draymond deserves serious credit for, I've been going back to the 2015 NBA Finals, I've been talking about how teams have made a big mistake, especially help defenders, treating Draymond on that, we could call it a four-on-three, three-on-two, two-on-one, whichever whichever iteration it's in, whether it's trapping the Curry pick-and-roll or it's just him pushing in transition. Teams have done... They've given his layups too much credence. And for me, Draymond always wants to pass in those circumstances. He doesn't always, but that's what he wants to do. And in these playoffs, he has done a much better job when the pass is taken away. Houston did that at moments. Portland did it a little bit. The Clippers, I thought, actually did a better job, maybe than anybody. And in those circumstances, he's been more aggressive finishing and getting contact if it's getting to the free throw line. But as you said, with the Raptors being bigger, even if he has improved there, and I think that he has, it's a harder ask against Toronto than any other team the Warriors have faced so far this postseason. It is. And I think those those factors kind of interlock in an interesting way, too, where when you have guards like Lowry and we'll see, you know, Van Vliet or Green or whoever it is that's kind of rotating over to try to stop Green. Um, sometimes it's a matter of making him hesitate for a split second, even if you're not taking the charge, whether he has to kind of change directions, whether he has to adjust course, whether uh, he's just pulling up a little bit so he doesn't hit a smaller defender quite so hard and get that offensive foul. And that's one area where I think Pascal Siakam in particular has been really impressive in, you know, when he sees Lowry in position to to slow a defender down to take that charge, he's so good at timing it out where he jumps up there and blocks it on top of it. And it's, you know, whether the Raptors get the call or not, whether it's, you know, a play on or whatever it is, having that kind of length and having, you know, as you're mentioning, OG back in the mix, Serge Ibaka back in the mix, Kawhi is obviously a threat to do some of that as well. Just the idea that you have a guy like Draymond who, you know, is not the most skilled player with the ball in terms of handle manipulation in terms of his feints and fakes and stuff like that like he is a straight line driver who also happens to be one of the best playmaking bigs in the nba and that's kind of how he you know manages to to uh, cat and mouse the defense a little bit but if you take away that pass or if he's really just playing just to drive on a given possession like he is on a lot of these kind of solo fast break endeavors then i think you're in a position as the raptors to really try to you know bait him into the air and then get his shot 
Yeah, that's a that's a great point and something that I will be looking for in this series. Something else that I think will be well, two other kind of interesting factors with these two teams that relate more to the bench players. So Toronto justifiably has gone to a shorter rotation. I mean, Van Vliet stepped up huge in the second half of the Eastern Conference Finals after really struggling for a lot of the rest of the playoffs. Norm Powell has done a nice job, and then Abaka Gasol, you know, those guys can play. And and they've done a good job at moments playing those guys together. I thought that was big in the Philly series in particular. So who Nick Nurse plays and when I think will be an important factor. But then the other thing, and maybe this is just because I've covered the whole Kerr era and everything else, is that... Steve Kerr has this specific trait where he is very reluctant to kind of really shift his rotation. He's more of a a, a reactor, but a reluctant reactor than anything else. And so I've had this theory, and D'Antoni did this at moments in the second round, of using Kerr's inflexibility in terms of when he plays players against him. And so what I mean by that is Nick Nurse can pretty much pencil in now, I mean, except for not knowing if Kevin Durant and Marcus Cousins are going to play and when they're coming back, how limited they're going to be. He kind of knows, like, okay, this is when Steph Curry's going to be on the floor. This is when Draymond Green's going to be on the floor. This is when Klay Thompson's going to be on the floor. And he can tailor his rotations a little bit to that. Meaning, okay, if you want, if you think Fred Van Vliet is better when Curry's on the floor, you know when Curry's going to be on the floor. If you don't want... Like, let's say Marcus or Serge Ibaka, one of them ends up being significantly better in the Curry minutes, the Draymond minutes, whatever. I think that knowledge is very valuable, and Nick Nurse seems like the type of coach who could, especially considering the flexibility he's shown in his rotations, who could use that to his advantage at, at moments in the series. I'm not saying, like, every moment of every game, but there could be some times where it's like, okay, we know the second unit for the Warriors, especially before KD gets back, is going to be very limited. Let's put some horses out there and try to build some distance. Yeah, I think that's definitely the time of the game you would focus in on is that start of the second and fourth quarters and really kind of press the Warriors and and make them either, you know, whether it's, you know, Cousins getting back into this series and playing during that time. We've seen Durant at times after Cousins went down, fill, you know, fill some of that offensive void. We've seen, you know, when needed or when wanted. I think it was in game four against Portland uh, in the fourth quarter that Curry just kind of went the whole way. And you you have that option on the table as well. But you kind of have to make the Warriors do stuff like that. You know, make them play Steph four or five more minutes than they would like to. Make them get out of the rotation a little bit. Really, as you're saying, kind of target Kerr where he lives, which is in, in you know, he, he especially with his stars, as you mentioned, kind of putting them in, in this very specific and thoughtful formation. And I think part of the reason why they don't want to deviate from that is because there are very specific reasons why all those guys play when they do, as most coaches have. But I think with the Warriors, you have so much talent. You can be even more deliberate with that type of thing. And then I think I think maybe more up in the air is how many of these role players still play and how much. I mean, we don't. I don't even think we really have a great idea of who's going to start at center in this series, whether that's Cousins getting back in the lineup, whether that's, you know, Jordan Bell was the last starting center we saw. Kevin or Kevon Looney is probably the best option that they have. Um, how much Andrew Bogut plays in the series, if at all, because I would I would guess that if you want him to play anyone, it's Gasol, although I don't really see the value in that necessarily, especially if Cousins is also playing. So how they want to manage all that stuff is interesting. And then, you know, how much and how willing you are to really stretch Andre Iguodala's minutes and whether you want to, you know, from Golden State side, try to match him up with Kawhi as much as you can, if only so you can keep Clay on Kyle Lowry or keep Clay out of that matchup. And 
you know, they could do that too. They, you know, and whether Durant, when Durant comes back and how much he plays and whether they want to put him right into the fire against Kawhi will be another thing to watch. But yeah, there's a lot of fascinating matchup stuff in this series. And certainly if Toronto doesn't have a great sense of what Golden State's going to do right off the bat, which I imagine they probably do, given everything you've said about Kerr and given the way that Golden State has played the rotation in these playoffs, it really doesn't take more than a game or so uh, before you have a pretty good sense of when everybody is going to play within the dynamic of this series. Again, provided for the big question, which is when is Durant back and how much is that really going to shake up everything that Golden State does? Yeah, and, and they're going to have to play a lot of it by ear because it's not only when is a player physically able, but what minute load are they willing to handle? How how does that fit in? And an interesting idea, going back to something I actually wrote about before the season started, is maybe if Cousins is more limited, they go to this approach of using him. His He would play more than this, but that his primary role is being the offensive linchpin of the second unit, where... He, he might not be good enough, especially considering how strong the Raptors are, to close games in this series, at least in the beginning, but probably overall. Then giving him those minutes at the start of the second and the fourth gives them a little bit of an of an avenue to attack. And it's not like the Warriors, especially if Draymond Green is not playing those minutes, are going to be ridiculous defensively, depending on who Toronto has on the floor at that time and how Nick Nurse wants to counter that. But I do think that could be an interesting use for Cousins as they're figuring out what he can do. Well, especially because, you know, playing off of the inverse of this idea of, you know, really targeting Steve Kerr's rotation uh, from the Raptors side, I think that's kind of the equivalent from the Golden State side, which is, you know, I would not want to put Cousins on the floor at the same time as Marcus All. That's not a productive matchup to me in any sense because you're, you know, not only kind of taking away, as we've seen at times, from what Golden State's best lineups can do when Gasol is on the floor, but then if you're also kind of posting Cousins a couple times on top of that or working him inside at all, you're talking about one of the best post defenders in the league, a guy who can, you know, stand up Joel Embiid. So why is he going to be afraid of Demarcus Cousins? Whereas, you know, the Raptors do take out Gasol at the start of the second and fourth quarters. That's a perfect time for Cousins, you know, to to attack Serge Ibaka, to attack Pascal Siakam, to really go at some of their smaller guys who are good players and good defenders in their own right, but just so much smaller than him that I think you can really prey on it. And I think, you know, the Cousins factor and the Durant factor are obviously huge in the series and, and when they come back and how much they play and how much they really end up kind of uh, changing the dynamic for both teams, where it, it would be really interesting to see if you know, say Toronto is really successful defensively for the first two games or even pretty successful. They, you know, they either split the first two games, they win them outright, whatever it is. And then Durant comes back. You obviously have to change so much about what your defense does. I think a lot of people are worried about, you know, the Warriors offense and, you know, having to shift styles, you know, to accommodate Durant who may not be fully healthy. But guarding them with Durant is just such a different ask. And and you're really banking on a different skill set and different personnel. And obviously you can't use Kawhi in the same respects as a helper when Durant is on the floor because you really want him zeroed in on that matchup. I think you're asking a lot of, you know, Toronto is one of, you know, the, the most savvy and canny defenses that the NBA has. And especially since they've got Marc Gasol, who's just another, you know, kind of thinker on the floor in real time. But when you're asking them to adapt to mid-series to the presence of another MVP-type talent, I think that's that's a huge shift for Toronto as well. And, you know, you certainly have questions about how both teams will respond to how Durant kind of impacts this series. But I'm, I'm very curious to see what Toronto does in particular. I am too. And taking Kawhi away or some of 
Kawhi's game away as a helper, I think, could be a really important part of the series. Even though the Warriors don't, you know, they don't do a ton at the basket. They also don't get to the free throw line, especially without Durant on the floor. They can provide looks for other guys. And, and Kawhi is, I mean, we've seen this in various series, is just so great at, at making life harder on offensive players. And so I'm really interested in that. And then the kind of the last point I want to make on this series, and it's something that I've become more fixated on over the last couple of years, is I think screening is going to play a very important part in these finals. And the reason I say that is because it's one of the easy, you know, going back to the kind of the fundamentals of basketball, it's one of the easiest ways to create separation between a player and his cover. And the qual like there are a lot of really good screeners in this series, and then there are a bunch of more apathetic screeners in this series. And I think that when those when those different elements come into play, you know, the guys like Fred Van Vliet who can fight through them or who who know which way to go, especially because this series has so many players offensively that put stress on the defense. I think screening and responses are going to be a huge part of how this ends up turning out. I think for sure. And and some of it is, you know, how not only can Van Vliet chase a guy like Curry around a screen, but how would how does the Raptors defense respond when Curry is the one setting the screens, as he so often does off the ball, to get guys like Iguodala or Draymond Green layups, to get, you know, cutters involved in different ways? Because, I mean, the, the action when Steph is a screener, I think, is just so devastating in a lot of ways. And that's one area where, you know, you can game plan this thing to death. You can watch as much tape of Curry as you want. You can think you know, all day and or, you know, for this finals, you know, for the better part of a week in terms of how you're really going to attack this. And then still the Warriors have this very simple, very easy way to kind of invert everything you do and force you to defend them differently, to force you to change your thinking or change your coverage. Because even though Curry is the threat involved, you don't want to give up layups and dunks uncontested to guys like Green and Iguodala or McKinney or whoever it is. And a simple screen has that power. And, you know, on the other side of the ball, you know, how involved the, the Raptors want to get into this kind of mismatch hunting, how willing they are to kind of veer out of the natural flow of their offense to do it via screens. Because, again, the Warriors will switch on and off the ball. Um, of course, they'll, they'll try to switch back and they'll scram out of it and they'll do all the, you know, the very clever things that modern NBA offenses do or modern NBA defenses do to try to control some of that damage. Uh, but you have to do it. You have to force them t- into those tough decisions. You have to put them in situations where, you know, they're trying to switch back, but there isn't quite as much window as they thought. And Kawhi just drives it down the gut of the defense as a result. And so all that screening action, there's going to be a lot on both sides. You know, Kyle Lowry, another great screener in his own right. Uh, it, it's it's going to be, I, I would say, not just, you know, an undercurrent of this series, but I think it'll probably be pretty front and center. Agreed. Anything else you, you think we should talk about with this series? I mean, there's a lot a lot of different things going on. I'm kind of reluctant to do predictions here because we're recording this on Wednesday morning and we don't know. We I, I assume we're going to get a more detailed accounting of what's going on with Durant and Cousins later in the day. But is there anything else you feel we should discuss? Nothing jumps out in particular other than, you know, I think the, the depth factor for the Warriors is something I'm pretty curious about, again, just in terms of what is Kerr willing to do and give up? Because at the end of that Houston series, and especially after that game six, where, you know, really just kind of a seminal win in this era for the Warriors playing without Durant, playing deeper and deeper into their bench and what they were able to accomplish. You know, Kerr was almost remorseful about the idea that he hadn't turned to some of these guys sooner, that he hadn't given, you know, Quinn Cook or Alfonso McKinney or, uh, you know, whether it's bringing Andrew Bogut back into the mix, giving Jordan Bell, giving these guys more of a chance to play in that series previously. And you understand why, because 
you know, if you put any kind of liability on the floor, the Rockets will seek it out and attack it. Another reason why it'll be interesting to see if Toronto does the same thing and how that kind of plays into the Warriors' depth as well. And so I, I, I can't see Kerr at this point going to an eight, nine-man rotation. I feel like it is, it's so much part of who he is right now, and certainly the coach he wants to be, to play 11 guys. And so who those 11 guys are from game to game will obviously change with you know Durant or, or Cousins being available or not. But whether that ultimately bites the Warriors, I don't know. We've certainly seen it do it, seen that happen in the past. Uh, I don't know that Toronto is in quite the same position to take advantage, but I think in some respects, this is this is just kind of who Kerr is. Yeah, and that could end up being a definitive story of this series. It has been, you know, at moments in the past, I think back to the 2016 finals, especially when he deals with injury-related adversity. And so playing 11 guys gets more complicated because you have, you're moving down to, you know, the 12th and 13th guys on the, on the team, and that can be complicated. So yeah, that's going to be something worth watching. Still more to talk about with Rob, but first a message from our friends at betonline.ag. We're approaching the end of May, and that means the NBA and NHL playoffs are reaching the most exciting time of the year, both going into the finals. So we're going to get a champion rising to the top. Every play, every possession, every moment is on the line with only two teams remaining in each sport. And there is only one place that has you covered, betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account on betonline.ag and use the promo code PODCAST1 for that 50% welcome bonus. Rob and I just spent a long time talking about the NBA Finals. You can do a series of different things there that I think are really interesting. And something that I particularly like with betonline.ag is in-game wagering. So maybe you're still figuring things out at the beginning. We talked about the injury reporting as being a particular part of that. But maybe you get a feel early in the game and you think you have a better read on it than other people. You can wager in-game. I think that's a really good thing you can do. Same thing if you are getting a field during the series, you can change it. Of course, they have amazing people that are adjusting the odds all the time, but that that's part of the fun of it. And you don't need to sit on the sidelines anymore. You can get in the action. Use the Podcast One promo code, or you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669 to receive that 50% welcome bonus. Got the NBA Finals, Stanley Cup Finals. You don't want to miss out on any of the action at betonline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. Also have a message from TrueCar. 60 seconds. That is exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with TrueCar. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get a true cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to TrueCar and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you will get an accurate TrueCash offer from a local TrueCar certified dealer. It is that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they will check it out with you together. You can ask questions, get the answers you need so there are no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So, when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. I want to transition, you know, we'll, I think this will end up with a conversation somewhat about the conference finals, but, you know, we're now recording this on May 29th, just about a month away from free agency. This is an absolutely massive year in terms of the not only the quantity of free agents, but the quality. And so, what I want to take a little bit of time to discuss with you is... Not making predictions on where these guys are going to go or anything like that, because there will be time for that. But really how they may or should interpret what has happened since the start of the playoffs in particular, but we can go to the regular season if necessary. And I think 
the place to start with that is Kyrie Irving. And Kyrie, I, I wrote a piece for The Athletic earlier in the year calling him the kingmaker after Anthony Davis made his trade demand, basically the idea that because he theoretically could swing the quality of Boston's offer, that could swing where Anthony Davis goes. And it's also Kyrie's first time hitting free agency. And so that's when we learn a lot about what a player prioritizes, what they value. And he has been mercurial at times, more than times. So I, I, I think that he's a good place to start in terms of not where is he going to go, but what is going to kind of define his choice? I mean, I think a lot of it will come down to exactly what his read was on the Celtics at the end of that series and why the season in so many ways for them. Um, it was a locker room that I think that the players themselves never really got a handle on that kind of the dynamic there was was had so much whiplash in terms of dealing with this quote that came out, this weird performance, this strange vibe, the fact that no one seemed to really know what to do with Gordon Hayward for long stretches of the, stretches of the season. I mean, in terms of you know the players on the team kind of understanding what his role was going to be, whether he deserved to be filling that role or not. I can't imagine coming out of that season, and especially with the way that they exited the playoffs, and thinking, you know, this is exactly the basketball position I want to be in. And some of that, you know, could be cleaned up if you make an Anthony Davis trade, if you make this move or that. But the Celtics are in such an awkward position in terms of, you know, they kind of, I mean, it's still up in the air whether Al Horford is back next season. It's still up in the air whether they can put together any of these players in the kind of trade package they would need or that they would want to make for a guy like Davis. And the timeline of when you can do that is so contradictory to when Kyrie Irving needs to make his own decision. I find it kind of harder and harder to think that he's coming back. And I don't think the options out there, there's no like one spot that's like, oh, that is so obviously the best landing place for Kyrie Irving uh, from a basketball perspective. I think, but he's a guy who I think has made pretty clear that while he is a basketball player, also has so many other things on his mind, so many other considerations in play that. You know, if he goes to the Knicks, that's not surprising. If he wants to reunite with LeBron, that would be fascinating and strange, but also kind of not surprising in its own way. I I just think there are so many weird things that could happen with him. You know, he's he's really the variable involved. Whereas, you know, Durant, I think we have a good beat. You know, we don't know what decision he's going to make. But I think the thinking is kind of on the table in terms of what the options are. Kyrie, I think, would not surprise me if there's kind of a left field option in play here, a team that that clears space, that trades somebody, that makes a bid for him, that kind of gets into the running in a different way. Because I think he is a guy who will kind of hear out some other offers just because his current situation, for as good as the Celtics were or could be, uh, for as much talent as they have, I just don't think there's a lot of trust there between him and the franchise in terms of, okay, this is exactly the kind of role I want to be in. This is exactly the kind of team team dynamic I want to be a part of. Something that struck me about Boston's situation. So they, they acquired Kyrie two seasons ago. And it's fair to attribute a portion of this to Gordon Hayward going down two minutes into the first game of the first real iteration of this team. But the most kind of simpatico, kumbaya, whatever you want to use, version of the Celtics was a version of the Celtics that Kyrie Irving was not playing on. And that was the team that closed out the 2018 regular season and, and made their surprising run in the playoffs. Now, I do think there were some contextual benefits that they had of, you know, weaker opposition that was Milwaukee. Milwaukee hadn't figured it out. They had, in my opinion, the worst coaching situation in the entire league then, which thankfully they do not now. And then Philly was they were still figuring a lot of this stuff out. It was their second playoff series ever, and they had just played Miami, a a very flawed team. 
and it's not to say that Celtics have been bad when Kyrie's been on the floor. They've been very good, and I think that that's been an underrated part of their story is that when Kyrie has been available, they have been a very, very good team. But I also think that, and we saw this in the playoffs, that even though they were very good, I could imagine that it wasn't necessarily exactly what Kyrie envisioned being a part of a team like this would be. And it's possible, as you said, that Anthony Davis could fix that. But I agree with you that the timing is very challenging because is Kyrie going to be that ready to commit? Like if he tells Danny Ainge, you get Anthony Davis, I'm coming back. And if you don't get Anthony Davis, I'm probably not. Then yes, Ainge has the has the means and would then have the incentives to probably get Anthony Davis. If that's what Kyrie wants, that's what I do. There's another crazy scenario. I alluded to it without deliberately mentioning it, that theoretically Kyrie and KD could play together on the Celtics as opposed to on the, the Knicks. And that would be if if KD opted in, and then theoretically the Celtics would get his full bird rights after the 1920 season, there is a way to do that. Like Kyrie, those are the sorts of options that are on the table if he wants to exert them. My instinct is that he isn't because he might, you know, there might be other things in play. Maybe he wants to be in a different city, different surrounding teammates, whatever it could be. And so that's part of why I find his situation so fascinating and so compelling is that he has this power and I'm not 100% sure a, if he's going to wield it, and B, if so, how he chooses to. Well, I think when you exert that kind of power, you are, in a certain sense, claiming an ownership of it. You know, if you are in a position to influence a team, to shape the course of events, to dictate who or who they do not go after, I think you are kind of pledging to it in a certain way. Um, or if you're LeBron, you kind of pull the strings from, you know, three degrees removed and then claim you never knew anything about it. But it, it's a, that's a pretty hard position, a hard line to walk. Uh, for a guy in Kyrie's position, I think given how public all this has been, given the incentives involved, as you said, uh, the avenues that they could go, I think are pretty well trodden at this point. But, you know, going back to something you said, I think, you know, Gordon Hayward's injury is such an such a strange counterfactual because normally when we talk about, oh, I wish this guy hadn't gotten injured in this way. We're talking about, you know, career altering implications, which I mean, it remains to be seen, you know, what kind of player Hayward ultimately turns out to be from this point forward. I think there are promising signs and certainly the timetable you would expect by next season that he would he would start to look a little more like himself. But just from a team perspective, the idea that, you know, you put Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier on more of a slow burn if Hayward was in the lineup the whole time that you know the point of emphasis of the Celtics first season could have been working out the Kyrie and and Gordon dynamic and how both of those guys function in an offense because they are complementary in so many ways and they and they could work really well together if both those guys are kind of locked in and at the height of their powers and then you have these young guys who are are coming up but aren't pushing in the same way because they don't know that they could lead a team to the conference finals because they never got a chance to do it. And so, you know, it's everyone kind of got everyone, you know, aside from Gordon and, and Kyrie who are off the table, but all the other Celtics kind of got the opportunities that they all the opportunity that they could have wanted in their absence. And I think the costs of that have been kind of catastrophic just because you have guys who are trying to be different kinds of players who who want the ball more in their hands, who want more investment. And when they don't get those things, you know, act out or, or you know, speak out or do, you know, what, whether it just kind of suffers in their play, whatever it is. Again, all this stuff with the Celtics has been argued to death over the course of the year in terms of what are the real culprits. But I think that injury in particular just it screwed up so much of what looked like it was going to be a pretty textbook elevation of a team that was pretty good to a team that could be a perennial contender for a long time. It also served as a reminder of 
how the kind of intangible elements here can be really important because I can understand. I, I'm not saying, you know, the reason Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you know, took a step back this past year was because of what happened. But you can't imagine how that puts stress on them that they were thrust into a situation. They got more responsibility than we would have expected for a team as good as the Celtics were as early as it was in those players' careers. And by and large, they succeeded. I talked about some of the contextual things that I think made that appear a little rosier, just like the Portland Trailblazers making the conference finals this year, despite not being one of the two, maybe arguably not one of the top four best teams in their conference this year. And that that affects expectations. It affects everything moving forward. And, and for those guys, I completely understand how they could look at what happened in the 2018 playoffs in particular and say, look, I proved that I can do it. And now I'm taking a step back. And while Kyrie Irving is, is an amazing player, Gordon Hayward was still working his way back. You know, he didn't look like himself for most of the season, in my opinion, if not ever. And it doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that they sandbagged or anything like that, but it, it, it gets frustrating. And I can see how that would be a real challenge for them. I, I want to transition to the player that we've talked about a couple of times in the Kyrie circumstance, and that's Anthony Davis. AD has less control over his present and future because he is under contract for at least the 1920 season. But I do think there's an underrated part of his story and the control that he wields, which is what he tells potential trade partners about his willingness to resign. And there are certain teams, we've seen this in various iterations over the last couple of years, Paul George is a prominent one here, where they'll take that risk, Kawhi Leonard too, they'll take that risk and maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. But generally speaking, the way that having a, a narrower list of places that you're willing to commit to at the moment, how that works is those teams are more willing to put in assets than other teams, and so their offers look comparatively better. That's the idea there. And I'm very interested in how Anthony Davis plays this. How narrow is his list? And, or is it, you know, does he say, like, the only team I'm committing to, this is the most extreme version. Let's say the most, uh, is the only team I will commit to re-signing with is the Los Angeles Lakers. He's within his rights to do that, if, if that's what he wants. But how does that affect Boston's offer? How does that affect a Clippers offer or any other team that could come out of the woodwork? You talked about that in terms of Kyrie of the, like, the left field teams. There could be those in Anthony Davis's circumstance as well. And so I wonder how much control he's going to wield over the process. No, I think those teams will come out. And I think, you know, especially after this Kawhi Leonard episode with Toronto, I think they're incentivized to do so even more. If you're one of those teams that's kind of jogging in place, that's kind of on the cusp but hasn't been able to break through, if you're in a position to make a deal – that doesn't, you know, obviously it's not going to devastate you long term unless you give up something of just phenomenal importance. But if you're in a position to trade for Anthony Davis, even with no assurances, I think there's there's pretty decent reason to do so. It's just a matter of, again, as you mentioned, how much are you willing to give up? How does that shape the market? How uh, how sp- you know specific and precise is Davis willing to be with both the Pelicans, with other teams, with you know kind of the market in general, and how much is he willing to kind of put his fingerprint on that process? But I mean, I'm I'm leaning more and more towards the fact that this is going to be kind of a chaotic, chaotic and unexpected summer, starting with these two guys. Just the idea that there are, there are too many mystery suitors in play right now. There's a li- there's just not enough certainty in terms of you know. I don't think I don't think that Jason Tatum and Brandon Ingram are, you know, they have a lot of they have a lot of flaws. They're more divisive players than you might think, I think especially Ingram in terms of the opinion around the league. 
and the willingness of those teams to, you know, I think Ingram is a little bit more on the table than Tatum would be, but whether the Celtics are even willing to include him in a potential deal is obviously a problem and obviously looped into whether AD is, you know, amenable to signing their long-term or not, because Tatum is from Boston's perspective, not the kind of player you give up for a rental. Uh, I think there's, there's a lot left to sort out. The one, the one Avenue I don't really buy is this idea that Davis is going to be somehow convinced to you know they're going to keep him for the year and really sell him on the idea of staying in new orleans i just think that ship has has long since sailed but other than that i think pretty there are there are really a lot of options on the table for him starting with you know the the lakers and the celtics of the world but also looping in the knicks also looping in you know some of these other teams that just don't get considered in quite the same light because they don't have you know the right combination of picks and young players uh, from a glance, but when you really dig in, there may be some other motivation to make a deal like that. On the Davis staying point, I think the most salient piece of information there is the difference between, and yes, it was a trade that got Kawhi to the Raptors, is that the way they could theoretically make him stay would be if they could establish themselves as title contenders. And that's not really realistic for this season. They're too far away. Yes, Zion could end up being awesome. He could be a fantastic player. I I love the film that I watched of him. But to expect a then 19-year-old to key that on on a roster that is still really shallow, I mean, they have Drew and AD and theoretically Zion, and then the, but they still need a lot of help on the perimeter. And I think that's the reason why it would be foolhardy for the Pelicans to go full bore about keeping Davis is that he's probably thinking a little bit more about the short term. He wants to, you know, made the playoffs twice, won one playoff series over his entire NBA career, despite being an MVP candidate when healthy, you know, most notably the first time they made the playoffs. But, you know, he's been, when healthy, been in that mix. So I, it's hard for me to imagine the Pelicans having the type of season that would be necessary to make him really reconsider. I mean, I think especially because the the primary carrot here is the idea of not getting out of New Orleans, which I think is a city that, you know, he has formed a relationship with over the course of his career there. It's not, you know, getting out. It, I don't think Davis is looking at this from the perspective of disliking an ownership structure or a front office or whatever it is on a on a fundamental level. It's I want to be like so many other, you know, like all of my peers have gotten the chance to do. And like I did briefly with DeMarcus Cousins, I just want to play with another star player. I want to play with another guy who can really lift some of that off of me from night to night. And I think, you know, everyone in the league respects the hell out of Drew Holiday. And I would expect that Anthony Davis does, too. But Drew is not that guy. And Zion, as you mentioned, is not, you know, will not be that guy for for a while. You know, as good as he could possibly be as a rookie, 19 and 20 year olds just aren't that kind of player. And, you know, Davis isn't old, but the clock is always ticking. You really only have so much time in the prime of your career to really press for, you know, to compete at the most at the highest levels. And so the idea that New Orleans would bring him anything that he really wanted, I think that they've done a marvelous job in hiring David Griffin and reorganizing their structure and overhauling their medical staff. Like the Pelicans are doing all the things that they need to do as an organization to be better. But those aren't the same things that are going to bring Anthony Davis back because I don't think that that thing is really within their power to give him. You know, unless you have the ability to get Kyrie, to get Kevin Durant, to get, you know, to get these guys to come to your team somehow, which financially is just not feasible for them, you know, from a logistical standpoint to do, then I think you're just in a different place in his consideration. I mean, during the season, you know, he was pretty clear about the 29 other other teams thing, and I think that still holds pretty true. 
we don't have a ton of time left, so we can go a little bit more briefly through the the other remaining players. I think one of the most fascinating ones is Kawhi, but a big challenge there is that the story is not yet written. Yeah, very much not. And well, I, I will say this: I mean, if you're if you're Kawhi, I don't know that what you have wanted to see or what you wanted to know about the Raptors hasn't already been asked and answered. You know, they've obviously been in dialogue between you know Kawhi and other players. There, Kawhi and the coaching staff, Kawhi and uh, Masai Ujiri and their front office, like and, and Kawhi's team and, and his representatives as well. Obviously involved in a lot of that. You know, whatever you wanted to see from the Raptors, I imagine you've seen, whether it's the way they take care of your body, whether it's the fact that this is a team that obviously is good enough to get to the finals, that made move that made moves, that made improvements along the way to make themselves even better. You know, I think that the Raptors have given themselves as much of a shot as they possibly can. Now, would winning a title, could that put it over the top? Potentially, but I think in the end we're still kind of looking, you know, like Kevin Durant in a case where Winning the championship isn't, you know, some overwhelming endorsement or indictment or, you know, or sorry, a failure to win the championship, not some indictment in any way. Kind of these players know who these teams are and whether that's something they want to sign up to be a part of is, you know, up to them and, and their decision to make. But I think the Raptors have really acclimated themselves well to this in this whole process and uh, and projected a, a pretty positive image both to Kawhi and to the rest of the league. I also wonder with Kawhi how, how much he's looking at the near term and how much he's looking at the long term because the Raptors are in a very good place now, but there is some shaky ground under it. I mean, Lowry and Ibaka only have one more year. Danny Green is a pending free agent. Marcus Gasol has the choice of whether he's a free agent in 2019 or 2020. And there, But there's also the consideration that Siakam's under contract. They have what looks like a, a coaching staff in a front office that is very stable. And they're a really good team right now. Like Theoretically, could Kawhi look at the Clippers? Yeah, absolutely. The Clippers next year, probably but not definitely, would not be as good as the Raptors this year. But maybe he sees the long game there, that the Clippers support players, especially considering the cap space that they have outside of Kawhi, that they could have a brighter future than their present. And I wonder if that's persuasive for him or if Kawhi's sitting there going, man, I already missed base, I already missed so much time due to an injury and I'm going to be signing this long-term contract. Do I really want to think about, you know, three years from now we could be really good or is it more about these next two? Well, I mean, from Kawhi's perspective, I don't see a reason why he can't have both, why he can't sign a two or three-year deal with the Raptors. That's true. And say to the Clippers, you know, show me something. Bring, bring in another star. Let me see how you interact with them. Uh, let me see how your team looks at that point in time because, it, yeah, again, it's one thing to have the blank slate, and I don't think the Clippers have that. Obviously, they have a lot of guys under contract who are good players who could contribute to a, you know, a playoff-level team um, to be determined if it's you know a championship-level team and all that. I think there's still a lot to decide, but – that's the thing about this Kawhi decision is it's like, okay, Raptors or Clippers or who, you know, what, what team do you end up seeing him with? And it's like in the next five years, we could see him with three of these teams. You know, like there, there are a lot of things on the table from his perspective where, you know, you're not – I don't think you're riding into the into the sunset with Kyle Lowry and Marcus Gasol and the guys, you know, unless Pascal Siaka makes some huge jump beyond what he's already made, which is, I mean, really turned himself into a hell of a player. But Kawhi's in a position to, like a lot of guys, like Kevin Durant has done, you know, make a short-term arrangement, make the most out of it, and then see what's out there at the end of that, which you know could eventually be a move to the Clippers or it could be a move somewhere else. 
I hadn't honestly given too much consideration to that idea, and I should have. I think it's a really good one. And the other huge takeaway from Kawhi's season is that I think he has the leverage to do that now because remember missing the 17-18 season and the quad stuff and we were really concerned about that there would be a much larger risk to leave a four or five year max contract on the table I think at this point Kawhi you know maybe he's leaving some on the table I think that I think that's fair to assert because there's injury risk and everything else that could happen and I mean, he's also gonna, whether they win the title or not, he's coming off a huge high right now. I mean, his, it's it's hard to imagine his stock getting that much higher than the dominance. I mean, he's been the best player in the playoffs so far, and you can't get a lot better than the best. So you have that. And so maybe you're right that the idea is we know Toronto or we have a pretty good idea that if they want to, granted, Danny Green's negotiation will be complicated, but that they could be similarly good next year. And maybe instead of kind of waiting to see what the Clippers or another team does in the first five days of free agency, instead, just wait to see what they do in the next year. And there is a real value to that, especially when your fallback option is this strong. I mean, I think it works especially well when you look at the complexion of the rest of the Eastern Conference where, you know, you just beat Milwaukee. And I think Milwaukee is in a position to be, you know, they could really run it back with a lot of these guys. But realistically, they may have to part with one of them or, or you know, a Brooke Lopez or a Malcolm Brogdon or whoever it is decides that they want to move on somewhere else. Um, Philly is a team I think you could feel pretty confident, even though that was, you know, a really tight series. But in terms of the mechanics of the two teams involved, I think you could feel pretty good about meeting them again in a playoff series. Other than that, who are you really afraid of? You know, the idea that, you know, out West there are going to be all kinds of different challenges if you're Kawhi Leonard. But when you look at what the Raptors can offer you in the short term, which is, again, all we're really looking at, we're not projecting five years into the future. The idea, you know, if your priority really is to win as much as possible and to compete to the latest stages of the playoffs as you possibly can, I would stay East. I would stay with a team that, again, you know can make it to the finals or at least, you know, compete with the teams that can and ride that thing out and then reevaluate. Briefly, let's talk about the Philadelphia guys. I think Tobias Harris, you know, the, especially because he was acquired right at the deadline, I'm assuming he's going to come back. But Jimmy Butler, you know, it's like turning keys on a submarine. Both player and team need to be on board. I thought he proved his value in their playoffs, even though they ended up losing in the second round. I mean, they lost to a really damn good team and they lost in seven games. They easily could have won that series, especially if Joel Embiid were healthier and I mean, healthy in terms of fitness and in terms of sickness, they could have done that. So I wonder how both sides there are feeling about a renewal of their vows, let's say. Well, I think the Sixers have to be feeling better and better about it just because they became at times, and some of that was contextual, as you mentioned, with what was going on with Embiid, but so Butler-reliant. And I think if you are if you have any doubt at all as to the future of Ben Simmons with that team, uh, you know, if, suppose, you know, if you're working for the Sixers, you have any doubt as to what Ben Simmons' future is going to be, any concern at all about what the shape of the team and how it might change going forward, I think Butler only becomes more and more important. And the contract will be very hard to swallow. And, you know, whatever, you know, Jimmy can be uh, certainly a little overbearing at times, certainly a bit of a headache, in, you know, when he wants to be. Uh, so you have to learn to deal with that and learn to accommodate kind of his particular brand of NBA superstardom or stardom at least. Uh but I just don't see a way where, given their trajectory over the course of these playoffs, how much they came to rely on him, the fact that that core really didn't get the time it needed to coalesce and yet was still good enough to put, you know, to push as far in the playoffs as they did to really be as competitive as they were with Embiid not at full health. I think you got to take that shot. And everything we've seen in terms of 
the decision making of the Sixers uh, kind of as an apparatus, I think, suggests that they see themselves as a team that's really on the cusp of this. That's really, you know, in a position to compete for titles. And if you're in that position, you don't, you know, you don't let Jimmy Butler walk if, you know, if, if it's if at all within your power to do that. Now, whether Jimmy wants to go to L.A. or wants to go to another team or that's obviously up to him, as you mentioned, you know, you got to turn both of these keys at once. But from a Sixers perspective, uh, I think you swallow the money. I think you you do what you got to do to bring him back because the alternatives just aren't very realistic in terms of competing at this level. You know, when you start letting guys like you know like Butler and to to a lesser extent like JJ Redick walk, then you're really putting yourself in, in a tough spot to to replace them with you know much more marginal replacements. Especially this year, where while there are a lot of high end free agents, we don't know who's going to be seriously considering the Sixers. So I mean, if if they could theoretically swap Jimmy Butler for Clay Thompson, that's a very different story than swapping him for somebody who's significantly worse. And I think that's the second boat is more where they would be. Very briefly, because. I think both of them have gotten short drift due to volume. Less than a minute, let's do on Kemba and and Al Horford. I think two of the more compelling personal decisions, considering their histories in the league. Yeah, I mean, I think Horford ultimately will be will be back with the Celtics um, on the on the option. But oh, so you think you'll think he'll pick it up? I think. Well, I mean, uh, it's it's kind of one or two one or two ways for me. Either he picks it up or he does the you know the opt out and the Harrison then Barnes sign type. Up. What I think that, yeah. with him, yeah. Or Pau, actually, Pau Gasol is a better example. Sure. Yeah, I think I think that avenue is pretty realistic for him. I think Horford is the exact kind of guy who has seen kind of the best of the Celtics on both sides. Where I don't know what he thinks of Kyrie or playing with Kyrie at this point, but just the fact that he's been so inter- you know integral to what they do. Uh, that he's connected in that locker room in a different way and may think of guys in a different light than a guy like Kyrie might, um, I think puts him in a position to stay and be happy and be productive there uh, for a longer term regardless. Whereas Kemba, I think, is, is probably as good as gone. And, you know, the the All-NBA situation certainly complicates that in terms of how much money, you know, the Hornets would really want to throw at him to try to keep him. But I, I think that that has kind of run its course. And I think, you know, Charlotte is in a position to be kind of magnanimous with it in terms of, look, you've you've done well by us for so long. Uh, this is this is kind of your opportunity to go win some games. I'm concerned about Charlotte and Kemba. It just like because we haven't seen players turn down that kind of money super often. You know, it has happened, you know, with Paul George and a few others where and we don't even know with Kawhi. It's such a weird circumstance that we never really found out whether that was on the table. And I hope that Charlotte doesn't offer it because then it becomes harder for Kemba. But yeah, I I don't want to see him there. And I think right now that's where I, I often think that when that circumstance happens, it ends up manifesting in the player just going somewhere else because if it's obvious enough to people in our line of work, then it's it's even more obvious to somebody who's in the grind day in day out yeah and i I think just from the hornets perspective i mean the the sum total of what you would be owing you know between kemba and nick batum and you know marvin williams assuming he comes back cody zeller bismack biombo like this is crippling and it's crippling in a way that sure in two years everyone's going to be kind of off the books except for kemba but that deal is going to be so massive and so prohibitive that whatever your goal was in building around him is going to be pretty much gone. And that's the tough part with these kinds of deals, especially where the Supermax is concerned, is you kind of have to have everything in place already, or at least most of it, or at least you know trade assets who you could then flip for a player who could be the supporting star or whatever it is. Because by the time you make that and agree to that deal, as the Wizards are going to find out uh, shortly with John Wall, it just it gets in the way of everything else you would possibly want to do. 
Agreed. Anything else you want to talk about? I know you. I know we're we're close on time. You have an open four though, if you want it. Oh, I mean, just one final caveat and to say that that's not to say that Kemba Walker is not an excellent player, yes. which he is. And I think you know certainly has played his you know played his way into positioning himself for that kind of deal. I, I think that's a different question as to whether teams should feel comfortable paying it. But Kemba's incredible. Personally, I would love to see him play with a little more talent around him. Um, you know, whether that's you know, pairing up with KD in New York, wherever he ends up going. I think there are a lot of options that could make sense. Basically, any any scenario where you say, oh, Kyrie could work there, I think Kemba could work just as well and, and is, you know, more of a Boy Scout, so to speak, in terms of kind of your culture and your locker room and stuff like that. I think it's it's going to be a fascinating time to watch Kemba if he's able to move on just in terms of what he prioritizes, what kind of players he ends up alongside, because I think he could really help a lot of teams. I enjoy the mental process of free agency when a player has good options on the table, and I think Kawhi and Kemba and all these guys are going to have a lot of good options. So that, that definitely makes it more interesting. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure. For sure. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Rob. I'm going to try to get this out before the afternoon-evening commute today, so it should be out pretty quickly. All right. Wonderful. Thanks, man. Cheers. Bye. Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time. You can read his work at Sports Illustrated. Lots of great stuff about the conference finals, and I'm sure he'll have some strong work coming up about the finals. Also, if you have not listened to it yet, his Breakaway podcast is absolutely fantastic. And if you want to, a previous time he was on, I think it was two times ago, we actually talked about how they make Breakaway. So if, uh, it'll be in the description of that episode. You just can look for the one if, you, if you're interested in that. And you can also, of course, follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having him on. Thought that his perspective was really fresh, and he gave me some real things to think about. I mean, in, in many ways, the biggest thing he gave me to think about was the idea of Kawhi taking a shorter-term deal, which was not really in the finals preview part, but I'm going to be rattling that through my brain for the next month, which is pretty fun. And... If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if that's Apple Podcasts, and it's, I understand if it's not. Uh, but if you want to be super awesome, if you use a different podcast player, which I happen to, you can leave a review both places if you want to be amazing. And really that and word of mouth is a big way of helping people find the show and telling them, hey, this episode's awesome or whatever. And the other thing you can do, subscribe, download every episode. Download numbers are important, and it's great to get in a habit with Real Jam Radio. That's why subscription is important, because it comes out at different times. Then there's nothing realistically that can be done to change that, because it's about guest availability. You know, this time I was trying to wait to see if we got injury news on Kevin Durant. Couldn't wait quite long enough for our own t- for our timing to mesh up, but thrilled with the episode all the same. If you have any feedback on Real Jam Radio, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue NBA at gmail.com is the way to do it. It goes into a dedicated place in my inbox. I read everything basically as soon as it comes in and I respond when I can. This is an insanely busy time of year for me, but I read everything because that's important to me. You're taking the time to write it. I will take the time to read it. And it does affect the show. Guest choices, some of the things that I focus in, everything like that. And you can also check out my other work, Dunked On, of course, with Nate Duncan five times a week for at least the next the next month plus until we get through the real big part of of the summer my writing is overwhelmingly at the athletic now and you know i'll I'll pop up in other things that's a good reason to follow me on twitter at daniel larue but the most important thing you can do to support me and support this show is to check out our advertisers and that is yahoo daily fantasy go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy use that pod 25 promo code for 25 dollars in free play after you make your first deposit CBS Sports HQ, which you can get on basically whatever device you use to, to watch content. It's pretty amazing. You can check it out. BetOnline.ag. Use that Podcast One promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. 
and TrueCar. Great place to sell or trade in your cars. As I mentioned in this long rambling fun time, I don't know when the next episode is going to go out or exactly necessarily what it will contain. You know, if I feel like there is something that is a little bit more evergreen related to the finals that could be an angle, I might just wait until the finals are over. I'll piece that together. I have a couple of different ideas. There are some guests that I've reached out to that I'm going to follow up with. So we'll, we'll find out that information together soon enough. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. want to go yes go travel go explore go find a new city go reconnect with friends go have fun that's why we created ongo the trusted rapid covid19 self-test ongo gives you accurate covid test results and peace of mind in just minutes so anywhere you go you know you'll know if you're covid19 free and you'll know you're protecting loved ones ongo is readily available at letsongo.com amazon walgreens or walmart.com use promo code ongo15 for 15 off at letsongo.com today Global supply chain issues have made it more difficult than ever to source the parts you need to keep your heavy-duty truck running. That can lead to downtime and lost money. Fortunately, you have a trusted partner that can help keep your rig on the road and running. FindItParts.com is the nation's largest supplier of heavy-duty truck and trailer parts. In just a few clicks, you can access more than $3 billion worth of inventory, millions of part numbers, and all the top brands. Need a part fast? We offer overnight and expedited shipping. Save the time and frustration of calling around trying to find parts. FindItParts.com is your one-stop shopping source for all your heavy-duty truck needs, delivered straight to your doorstep. Use promo code PODCAST for 10% off your next purchase. That's finditparts.com, promo code PODCAST. Your trusted supplier for all heavy-duty truck and trailer parts.